Welcome to Rebel Roundup, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, in which we look back at some of the very best commentaries of the week by your favorite Rebels. I'm your host, David Menzies. Well, it's official. GM's Oshawa assembly plant is shutting down. And worse yet, you can expect more misery for the Canadian auto sector should Justin Trudeau get his way with a carbon tax. Ezra Levent will serve up all the gruesome details. And the migrant caravan has made it all the way to the U.S. border, and now the street theater begins for the media. But are these Central American refugees fleeing oppression, or are they opportunists simply hoping to game the system? Kurt Schlichter will offer his take. And perhaps the late missionary John Allen Chow was foolhardy by deciding to spread the gospel in a very dangerous place. Still, it is disturbing to see how his death is being covered by the media in certain quarters. Ben Davies shall explain all. And finally, we get your letters every minute of every day, and I'll share some of the letters we received regarding my Q&A session with attendees who were going to a speaking event in Toronto featuring Bill and Hillary Clinton. Let's just say this, most didn't appreciate my so-called inappropriate questions. Those are your Rebels, now let's round them up. Let me read from the Wall Street Journal, because these days, if you want honest reporting about something in Canada, you can't really trust Canadian media because they're all in on the payroll of Justin Trudeau, or about to be with his $595 million slush fund. So this was printed on the Yahoo Finance website, but as you can see, it was written by the Wall Street Journal. Headline, General Motors expected to shut down operations in Oshawa, Ontario. Now the story says that GM is cutting costs in a lot of places, including in the US, but let me read to you a line that I haven't seen in the CBC or CTV or any other Trudeau media outlet. Canada's auto industry, which is concentrated in southern Ontario, has shrunk over the past decade as more factories move to the southern U.S. and Mexico where labor costs are cheaper. Canadian policymakers had hoped the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, reached in late September with provisions requiring more work be done by higher wage workers, would help the domestic industry. Today, Canada is among the most expensive countries in the world to build cars and the highest cost market for car assembly in the North American free trade zone. Huh. Here's what Buzz Hargrove, a past president of the Canadian Auto Workers, had to say. He, he lived and breathed auto workers for, for years. He didn't hang out quite as much uh, flying around on Justin Trudeau's private jets in his day, the prime minister of his day. Here's what Buzz Hargrove said in the sun today. He said, uh, former Canadian auto workers head Buzz Hargrove told the Sun News of the closure left him reeling. I'm shocked, he said. It seems like Trump's strategy is working beyond belief. Exactly. And who do you think is going to get better? Do you think it's going to get better or worse when Justin Trudeau's national carbon tax kit kicks in? We're talking about costs of production here, aren't we? Whereas Donald Trump is actually cutting taxes. And he says, if anything, he's going to cut taxes more and reduce red tape more for the auto industry. Remember, he's been talking about getting rid of the extremely expensive fuel efficiency standards that's forced on Detroit. Now, this is happening on Justin Trudeau's watch. 
It, it seems to happen a lot with him. Well, from General Motors to Government Motors to Goodbye Motors, GM is rolling out of Oshawa after a century of making cars and trucks here. Nothing can be done to save this assembly plant, as well as other GM plants located in Michigan, Ohio, and Maryland that are also being mothballed. Yet, looking ahead to the future, if you were an auto executive looking to put a plant in North America, where would you go? To the US, where Donald Trump is cutting taxes and red tape? Or to Canada, where Justin Trudeau seems hell-bent on establishing a carbon tax, regardless of the economic consequences? Joining me now with more on this story is Rebel Commander Ezra Levant. Welcome to Rebel Roundup, Thanks Ezra. Very much. And you know, Ezra, uh, there are so many angles to this story, um, but I think this is an important one. Moving forward, uh, Ontario is a manufacturing province, or at least was a manufacturing province. A carbon tax is cancer to the manufacturing uh, process. We have we saw this tragic announcement on Monday, and yet Justin Trudeau, he's not backing down from this, is he? Yeah. Well. There's a few things going on. First of all, you have taxes in general in Canada. Yeah. Uh, and business taxes are now higher here than they are in the United States. That's a big deal. Uh, Donald Trump made huge tax cuts in January. Second of all, electricity prices, power prices in Ontario are amongst the highest in North America, whereas they're actually falling in the United States because fracking has so much cheap natural gas that's really cut the prices of power, gas, et cetera. Um, and then the carbon tax hits everything. It also hits car users themselves. I mean, yes. um, so there's, there's about three or four ways. Uh, Canada is now the highest cost place to build a car in North America. It's obviously more expensive than Mexico, but now it's more expensive than even, you know, Michigan, Ohio, whatever. And then finally, what I've just said is a snapshot of today, but in two or three or four years, do you think things will be easier or harder in Canada? Because if you're going to invest a billion dollars or make a decision to produce a certain product line, like for a new, the new Jeep truck, for example, if you're going to commit to five or 10 years of producing that, you're not just looking at taxes today, you're looking at things in five, 10 years. Do you think that it will be easier or harder to do business in Canada in five years versus in Donald Trump's America? And and everyone knows the answer to that. I want to take, I want to disagree with one small thing you said. Sure. I actually don't think it's a certainty that that plant is closing. Mm. And the reason I say that is because I think GM uh, has learned a little bit from Bombardier. Oh. And if they can manage to wring out half a billion dollars from Trudeau, maybe a quarter billion from Doug Ford, all of a sudden, that changes the math we've just been talking about. But haven't they already wrung out from us, the taxpayer, billions of dollars, Ezra? I mean, and that's proof that they know they can do it. Yeah, that's a precedent, and they'll just go back for round two, three, four, five, six, seven. And, and you know, I, I had a commentary. I was looking at the the big picture. I would argue that the rot actually set in in the early '70s. There were seismic things happening in the auto industry. You had the establishment of OPEC, so cheap gasoline is over. You had the Environmental Protection agency established circa 1973 that brought an end to the American muscle car and then you had a corporate culture at GM Ezra union entitlement cowardly management a complete lack of vision by senior executives in terms of grasping the trends where the auto industry was going all the while 
under the knowledge that we are, quote, too big to fail, that if we skid off the road, there is a taxpayer-funded safety net. So my argument to you, Ezra, is that as a company, what is the incentive to get it right if you know you're going to be bailed out? Well, and that's the thing that uh, Ford, sorry, Ford didn't take the bailout. Chrysler and GM yes. took a huge bailout yeah. a decade ago. And uh, frankly, Stephen Harper was part of that, as along with Dalton McGuinty. Now, you can understand why, because Barack Obama was bailing out on such a massive scale. And if Canada didn't bail out proportionately, Obama would have just said, look, I'm giving you guys $50 billion or whatever it is. You're shutting down everything in Canada because they're not chipping in pro rata. Right. So that, I think Harper had to do that, or the entire auto industry would have been shut down in Canada. I'm not making excuses for him, I'm just trying to understand why Harper would do something so uh, luxurious. But, but, but wait a minute, can I yeah. challenge you on that, Ezra? Yeah. Because you have very successful, very productive, very profitable non-union plants here in Ontario. A Honda, Toyota, the only Lexus plant outside of Japan in the world is here in southern you know, Ontario. That was, those were the next words out of my mouth. I okay. was gonna point out <laughs> that the companies, I mean Ford didn't take the bailout, but note that I didn't mention uh, those automakers that have factories in North America. I didn't know the fact you just said about Lexus, yep. but I know that in the United States, especially in lower cost, uh, less unionized jurisdictions, they have profitable, modern, uh, rewarding, successful automakers that are not stuck in that old mindset. There used to be a saying in the 50s, what's good for GM is good for America. Yep. And it was, there was a lot of truth to it because uh, GM was big enough that it would be sensitive to any problems in the economy, taxes, regulations, whatever. Yep. And everything was, go all the arrows were in the right direction. But then it became bombardierized yep. and unionified. And um, yeah, a lot of things went wrong. I think that, uh, I think that the, the GM, if I looked into the details a little bit, they have some obligations in that plant that lasts for another year. Yeah. I think in that year you will see negotiations, probably not as much publicly as privately. And look, GM's no not dumb. They saw what Bombardier got away with. Yep. They saw what Maple Leaf Foods just got away yep. with in Ontario. They know that um, the Liberals are stupid. Liberals just overpaid a billion dollars for a 70-year-old pipeline called the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Yep. If you were the CEO of GM, wouldn't you say, well, before we shut down, let's have a private meeting with Trudeau and Bill Morneau and just say, look, it's just another billion. You've already got a huge, just throw it on the fire, throw another bale of hundreds on 100 fire. 100% Ezra, but if I'm the CEO of Canada, i.e. the Prime Minister, and by the way, this is one of the biggest rounds of applause uh, Maxime Bernier got in Toronto when he was outlining his uh, platform, uh, no more corporate welfare. Yeah. The answer is no, yeah. Bombardier, I mean, they can't deliver to the Toronto Transit Commission promised streetcars. In England, their name is mud well, they, for over-promising and under-delivering. Well, and around the world, you just yeah. Google the words Bombardier corruption. Yeah. They're charged with corruption and in many cases convicted in many jurisdictions around the world. They are an awful company, but they are extremely successful at one thing. They're not that great at airplanes, not that great at streetcars, not that great at a lot of things, but they're extremely good at separating Canadian liberal politicians from Canadian taxpayers' dollars to their direction. The, the political lobbying unit of Bombardier is probably pound for pound the most profitable corporate unit in the entire country. Think about it, they, they probably have 20 people and they have liberated billions of dollars from the feds, from the provinces. I think like who, those are the most 
uh, enriching people in the entire company. You gotta salute them. And if I was GM, I'd say, well, can I hire those Bombardier, uh, uh, you know, necromancers? Because um, Justin Trudeau would love to come in and say, I saved it. And by the way, we got an election coming up in less than a year. Trudeau would love to come in and say, I have saved it. And you know what, that riding of um, Oshawa has voted conservative yeah. for more than a decade. Uh, for a long time, actually. And uh, the Liberals do very poorly there. If Justin Trudeau came in with Jerry Diaz, the head of Unifor, and maybe even the CEO of GM Canada, and, they, and he said, I am here to save the day, maybe he'd flip the seat. And maybe he would say, yeah, I'll spend half a billion dollars to pick up an MP. Maybe he'd do that. It, it's a fascinating theory, but at the end of the day, you know, Ezra, I'm kind of a car guy. I used to cover cars uh, in the uh, mainstream media. When you look at GM right now in North America, they have too many plants yeah. operating just one shift. Yeah, they got a million cars over capacity yeah. in their factories. And making too many of the wrong kind of cars. In Oshawa, their bread and butter car is the Chevy Impala. That, by the way, is a very good car. Here's the problem. Last year, they made less than 76,000, and it has become what's known as a fleet vehicle. It's a relatively low profit margin car that goes to car rental companies and taxi companies. Yeah. I mean, when have you last seen a late model Chevy Impala on the road? Yeah. Whereas where the biggest growth segment is in the auto industry is small crossovers. And to me, again, I go back to the fact that, you know, the year I was born, 1962, General Motors in North America has over 50% market share. Every yeah. second yeah. car was a GM. Yeah. And how they've gone from that yeah. to taking their eye off the ball and again, aided and abetted by taxpayer welfare, I say enough is enough, let nature do its course. Yeah, well, listen, that's what you say. Um, and um, the nature of politicians is to the contrary of that. Um, I've heard, you know, there's the old saying, politics is the art of plucking the chicken uh, with as few squawks as possible. Or, or uh, if you can pluck a feather from 30 million Canadians and give it to GM, like if, if you can have the pain as diffuse as possible, but the riches as acute as possible, you're gonna get a vote here and you'll lose a tiny bit of support out there, yeah. but you get a big success here in Oshawa. I, I just think that we have a fairly corrupt government in Ottawa and I don't even think they would, they're hiding their nature. Everything, um, I, I just saw in the Globe and Mail the other day, <laughs> it was a headline, <laughs> a new capitalism. <laughs> Uh, Justin Trudeau's and Bill Morneau has invented a new capitalism. Yeah, that, that's not capital, that's crony capitalism. That's, that's old school payoffs, bailouts, crony capitalism, feather betting. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, not saying it's, I'm, I'm not saying it's a done deal, but I, uh, I would, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if Trudeau came in, painted himself the industrial hero to save the day. Well, we'll keep an eye on this file, Ezra. We have to wrap it here. And folks, of course, you know my personal GM story. In 1980, I sold my comic book collection for a U74 Chevy Camaro to get a date at high school. And not only did the Camaro fail in its mandate, but that comic book collection today, valuable enough to buy a Ferrari off the lot. So thanks, GM. Anyways, <laughs> keep it here. More of Rebel Roundup to come after this. <laughs>
our borders in crisis, and why is it in crisis? Because left-wing agitators are prompting a whole bunch of Central Americans to come north and do the same kind of garbage that the Palestinians do outside of Gaza. Yeah, it's all a show, it's all Hollywood. It's all designed to make those photos happen. You know, the photo of the woman with the two kids and the bare feet and they've got the tear gas and oh my God, Why are you bringing your freaking barefooted kids to a freaking riot, you hack, you criminal, you scumbag? This isn't a mother, this is a dirtbag and she's allowing herself to be manipulated and you're allowing, allowing yourself to be manipulated if you buy any of it, because it's crap, it's garbage, it's trash. This is our country. It does not belong to Hondurans, it does not belong to Guatemalans, it does not belong to Mexicans or El Salvadorans, it doesn't belong to any of them, it belongs to us. We make the laws, and the laws say, you don't climb over the damn fence. At the end of the day, we either have laws or we don't. Leftists don't want us to have laws, at least not laws that we pass. They want laws that they pass, that they enforce. Make no mistake, folks, this is an invasion. Yes, the migrants in the caravan are not weaponized, but when uninvited guests are trying to illegally barge into another country, well, if that's not the definition of an invasion, I don't know what is. Joining me now with more on what looks like the end of the roadshow for the migrant caravan is Kurt Schlichter. Welcome to Rebel Roundup, Kurt. Hey, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Now, Kurt, as you know, earlier this month, we traveled down to southern Mexico and we followed this caravan for five full days. So I've seen firsthand what this is all about. And first things first, about 90% of this caravan is comprised of able-bodied young men. But it's kind of funny, isn't it? When they get to the U.S. border, the 10% who are women and children are moved to the front of the line because I guess that makes for better photo ops, doesn't it? I know, isn't it remarkable? It almost <laughs> reminds you of Gaza. I mean, it, look, it, this is a giant scam and I just don't think it's working. I think we've gotten so jaded by being lied to for so long you know, they had the, the picture of that, uh, well, she wasn't quite starving mother uh, with her kids without shoes, wearing diapers at like age 10. And that's like the photo. And I think they thought, well, this will tug at those rubes heartstrings. And we all looked at it and we're thinking, first of all, homegirl needs to go on a diet. Second of all, why are you bringing your kids to a riot? Third of all, maybe you should get some shoes. Fourth of all, go to hell. You can't come in our country. I, I just don't think it works. Indeed. Now, Kurt, how would you respond to the liberals and the progressives out there that say things like we have a moral obligation to help the downtrodden, that um, if you look at the birth rates in so many uh, Western countries, they are so low, we need more immigration. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, first of all, I, I married an immigrant. My wife was literally a Hispanic immigrant, a, a legal one. So I, I, you know, when, when you when you start telling me about the importance of immigration, it's just a hack cliche to me. I, I live the 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 dream of America for for immigrants every day. Uh, and, and, and my family came over and my family, you know, immediately joined the military. You know, my my wife's father, my wife's brother, uh, she waved goodbye to me when I went off to serve our country for 16 months while she had a six month old kid. So I, you know, I don't need immigrants or good lessons. Okay, I've I've lived the magic of legal immigrants who actually contribute to our country. 
Uh, the second thing I would say is no, no, this is our country and we get to decide who comes in based on whatever criteria we choose. And I happen to choose, will you be useful to us? My moral responsibility is primarily to my family and my country and not to their families and their countries. Their countries are hellholes. I want to ensure that when we allow people to come here, they are not going to bring the crummy values that turn their countries into open sewers here to impose them on us. I live in California. I've seen the magic happen. I know what happens. Indeed, and you know, one of our segments, uh, Kurt, is that when we were following the caravan in southern Mexico from town to town, when they were put up, when they left the next day, the literal mountains of trash left behind. I mean, they, they couldn't be, be bothered, even though they had all this time on their hands to simply clean up after themselves. But you know, the thing is, I, I, and I think it's important for all the liberals out there, it's that we're not, ex- we're not necessarily anti-immigration, we're we're anti-illegal immigration. My grandparents came to Canada from Scotland in 1946 after the Second World War, but they went through the proper channels, Kurt. And I mean, this idea of entitlement, because when I ask people there, why don't you emigrate to the U.S. legally, like thousands attempt to do every week, the question was, it takes too long and it costs too much money. I'm sorry, I don't have sympathy for that. No. Uh- you don't get to break our rules and then come here and not have us say no. Now, I, I, I understand why liberals want them here. They think these are uh, pliable peasants who will vote as instructed. And in, in California, that's worked. Uh, they want to replace this uppity voter base of uh, you know patriotic Americans who naturally you know look askance at the Democrats and their hideous socialist policy. So I, I get why they want to do it. I'm just not going to let them. They just don't get to do it. And, you know, I don't need a bunch of um, college student jerks trying to lecture me on morals. I can go upstairs and show you my ribbon rack on my uniform of where I went to foreign countries at the expense of my career and time with my family to help save foreigners from disasters largely of their own making. Uh, so I, I don't need lessons from these people about what it is to help. All I see is posing. All I see here are cliches. And um, I say no. I say you don't get to come here unless you get my permission. And to get my permission, you have to earn it. What's in it for me? And also the U.S. has to worry about setting a precedent. If this caravan was let in, Kurt, there would be a caravan every week from all over the world Uh, coming to the United States. But, you know, I want to get your thoughts on this. What I noticed in uh, by by getting embedded in the caravan earlier this month, Kurt, is that the United Nations has resources committed to this caravan. They have people on the ground. And I thought it was perversely ironic that U.S. taxpayers with their tax dollars are essentially funding this invasion of their own country. What's your take? Well, that's that's pretty typical. I mean, you know, we 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 tend, you know, liberals tend to get in positions where they can direct money. So we end up directing it to, you know, Palestinian terrorists, various other scumbags around the world and then these criminals. And, um, you know, we need to wise up. That's one of the things I like about Trump is he says the things you're not supposed to say, like, hey, wait a minute. Why are we giving money to Hamas and the PLO? They just murdered an American. Why are we doing that? 
And, and, you know, you're not supposed to say those things. But I think it's important to say the things that people don't want said. In fact, those are the only things really worth saying because the rest are just cliches. And, and Kurt, I want to get your take, too, on the media coverage of this caravan. Uh, I'll throw out two nuggets for you. First of all, when um, CBC here uh, reported that when the caravan was 5,000 people, 2,300 were children. Now, I can tell you <laughs> that that is a factual statement if your definition of a child is someone under the age of 35 as opposed to 18. Secondly, The Guardian last month reported that the real reason for this uh, migrant caravan is climate change, right? Mm -hmm. And they base that <laughs> hypothesis on the fact that uh, a couple of anecdotes of farmers having two crop failures in a row but I would say that crop failures have been part of farming since, oh, I don't know, the invention of farming. What do you make of this narrative that we're seeing from the mainstream media, Kurt? I don't think people are buying it. Look, everybody yeah. knows the media is a liberal transcription service and that they're liars. Everything they say is presumptively a lie. And I think people are getting woke to it. Again, one of the great services of Donald Trump is to accurately point out that the media is the enemy of the people. It is the enemy of the people. It is the tool of the elite, it is the weapon of the elite. And the weapon is being wielded against the people. And uh, they hate that because they, they, they love the idea that they've assumed the moral high ground, but they haven't. They're a bunch of liars, dirtbag, and scum and scumbags. And everything you see on the media, you must presume is a lie designed to fool you into supporting liberal causes. Yeah. If you un if you go into it that way, you're 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 not going to be fooled. 100% Kurt, we're going to have to wrap it there and I would argue once again that a nation without borders and a nation that doesn't enforce its borders, it really isn't much of a nation, not in any kind of meaningful sense. That's true. That's true. Borders make a country. You got it. Kurt, thank you Period. so much. Thank you. You got it. And folks, keep it here. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. seen these media slants, right? Like a free speech rally is attacked by Antifa. And many in the mainstream media will say free speech rally people incite violence. And you're like, wait, what? Who came there to attack? Wait, do, do, do Antifa rallies get attacked? Do pride marches get attacked? Do pro-abortion marches get shut down? No, the right almost never, if ever, attacks other events, but somehow, some way, it's the right's fault. The right just brings it on itself. And in this tragic story, John Cho, the American missionary, was killed after he reached North Sentinel Island, which is banned from outside contact and is illegal to travel to, which is probably why you haven't heard of it. And John was killed when he reached the island by the native people, the Sentinelese, who have been isolated and cut off from the world for thousands of years. So how would the mainstream media paint this story? Well, USA Today was pretty clear, leading with a headline saying, quote, American on misplaced adventure killed by hostile tribes on remote island. Very subtle. NBC said, quote, American killed by isolated tribe on India's North Sentinel Island, police say. And then they lead it with, quote, an American adventurer who kayaked to a remote Indian island populated by a tribe known for shooting outsiders with bows and arrows has been killed, police say Wednesday. Yeah, this adventurer got what was coming to him. And LA Times leads with its first, quote, calling John an American tourist. The mainstream media is quick to lump John's actions into an adventure seeker. A 
tourist or a risk taker, painting the story for the readers that John's acts were all self-seeking, self-serving, risking his life solely for the thrill. And I guess he just got what was coming to him. Well, let me give you some more details from his actual journals and the last entries of it. John said, quote, I'm scared, watching the sunset and it's beautiful, crying a bit, wondering if it'll be the last sunset I see, unquote. Quote, you guys may think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worthwhile to declare Jesus to these people. God, I don't want to die, unquote. And despite knowing the danger, John had been planning this trip for three years, as mentioned by a friend to the Daily Mail, to quote, preach Christianity to the tribesmen. Yeah, it really sounds like he was trying to get an adrenaline rush, right? And on his final day, the fisherman who dropped him off said, quote, John found himself facing a flurry of arrows, but he kept walking. Clearly, John Allen Chow was a man on a mission, and that mission did not go very well indeed. Now, was it foolhardy and downright dangerous to go to North Sentinel Island in the first place? Perhaps. But by the same token, there seems to be a degree of glee in certain quarters, including those in the mainstream media, who appear to be gloating over Mr. Chow's demise. And that's not right either. And with more on the horrible death of John Chow, I'm joined now by our Tinseltown rebel, Ben Davies. Welcome to Rebel Roundup, Ben. All right. oh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. A pleasure as always. But Ben, I have to be honest with you here. I'm struggling with this story. Mr. Chow went to an extremely dangerous place and a place that's actually illegal to visit. He was smuggled there by a fisherman and he knew that. My question is this, could he have not gone somewhere else that was more receptive to his missionary work or at least to a place that wasn't going to result in a death sentence for him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are like hundreds of thousands, millions of missionaries all over the world that do this kind of work constantly. I work with several organizations like Amazima Ministries that goes into Uganda, where we went up into the mountains where people had literally never seen a white person before. And for kids whose parents have died of AIDS, we would take them in and take them to school and give them two meals a day when they were just living in the dirt, basically. And there's organizations like this all over the world that do incredible good. And these were things that John Chow had done, like he'd done missions work before. Um, but this was the first time he's like, well, these people, like no one has been able to reach these people. They've been living isolated for years. And he wanted to spread the word and the gospel to them and give them hope in a future. And that was his goal, whether you you know believe his intentions or not. That was uh, kind of what his mission was. But what I think is so fascinating is looking back on this, this is the most controversial video I've ever put on The Rebel. I have more <laughs> dislikes on this video than ever before and more comments than ever before. And I think it's so interesting because I think there's two questions here. The first thing that I could reach out to uh, for people that didn't like the video specifically because, you know, there was a bunch of people attacking Christianity. If you are watching The Rebel, I'm sure you're a fan of the West. And that's one of the things I talked about is why the media is slanting this a certain way for John Chow. And uh, it's if there is an attack on Christianity and Judeo-Christian principles, they are attacking Western civilization. That's the reason why they're doing it. And I was talking about the way they were framing John when they were describing him as an adventure seeker or a uh, tourist or something like that, and specifically not demeaning the reason why he was there. And that, that's the reason why they were going there. And I think the people that were disliking my video Half it, I was just talking about the way the media is attacking this, with, to attack increased Christian beliefs and Christian principles, and the conflated with the people going to a tribe area that has not been um, immune to diseases. Um, then I think those were the two things that really got people going on the uh, video. But, but you know, Ben, subtracting the religion out of it here, it's just the fact that he seemed to be going 
to a place where he wanted to save people where clearly they don't want to be saved. And, and I mean, and I have some sympathy for these people. Evidently, if you go back to 1858, the population was over 5,000. The last credible number they have is from 1931, 460 decimated by diseases. I mean, I guess it's one thing to spread the gospel. It's another thing if you're going to spread measles. And this is why these people are saying, look, leave us alone. We don't want any outside interference. They, uh, they tried to kill um, a shipwrecked uh, Belgian uh, uh, crew in 1981. Only uh, heavy waters prevented them from doing so. In 1974, a, a National Geographic film crew was there. The cameraman ended up with a, an arrow in his ankle. They have said time and time again, don't come here. So again, I ask you, Ben, why go there? <laughs> 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 yeah, like I said, it's uh, I, I, in my video specifically, I wasn't condoning people to do what John did. I wasn't saying to anyone go to this island, like break the law and, and do this sort of thing. Um, and to answer your question, why, if you feel like there's a calling on your heart from God, you're going to follow through with it. And uh, that was and, and so I wasn't questioning his motives necessarily. And that was why he was, I guess, going to, to this place in the first place. His friends said he'd pl been playing this trip for three years. Um, I was <laughs> I was more pointing out that obviously I was not condoning people going to the island. I was just saying that it would be very, very different if this was not a Christian missionary, if this was a radical feminism trying to empower women on the island, like she would be martyred as a hero. We'd have a national holiday. But since it was a Christian missionary, it was kind of uh, almost made fun of or mocked for him going over there. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, these people obviously want to be isolated. And this is something that is dangerous. But it was not like he was a colonizer, which is what he was called to trying to get to this island to plant a flag. He was walking into arrow fire with his hands out because he wanted to help the people. Uh, I think it, it almost disrespectful the way it was framed by many in the media. But you know, Ben, if I throw it out to you again, I, I mean, in a way, another reason why I have sympathy for these people is that they're pursuing a narrative that we support, which is border control and preventing illegals from coming into your territory. And that's what they did here. Now, did this man mm -hmm. deserve a death sentence? Absolutely not. But those are, those are the, the, the rules of engagement that this tribe operates under. So again, um, just like uh, the U.S. is protecting its border on Mexico right now from some 5,000 migrants uh, from Central America getting in, this is what the Centralese protecting their territory too, is it not? Oh, absolutely. And that's why they're not going to be charged with murder. Uh, I know they're trying to retrieve the body now. And uh, yeah, that's a that's a very separate uh, issue in that, in that front. Yeah, being protecting your borders and that sort of thing like that. That wasn't something that I was disputing in that at all. And he he was willing to take the risk and face the death sentence for doing that. And I guess they had the right to defend their borders and kill him. And that's why they're not going to be charged with anything from the India. Obviously, there's no government influence over there. There's no technology or anything. But uh, I mean, he knew the risk and that's and that was what happened. Well, I guess we'll wrap it here, Ben. I, I think I always try to look for a silver lining in any kind of tragedy. And I, and I really feel for this man. He, he didn't deserve to pay for his with his life. He made a stupid decision to go there, but he doesn't deserve, I think, to get the kind of hate on mocking he's receiving. But having said that, maybe the silver lining is his example uh, is a, a telltale warning sign to anyone else for whatever reason that wants to go there. You are not welcome for any reason. Stay away or pay the ultimate price.
Yeah, and I, I would encourage people too because obviously people will talk about the, in, in doing disease or in, in, in injecting disease in different cultures and stuff. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples that complete opposite happening with other civilizations, including a great movie called The End of the Spear with Harani tribe in Honduras that were isolated as well. And after the missionaries were killed, their children and, and wives would come back and befriended these people and brought them into civilization that completely transformed the area. So it's, but so I, I want to also have that too, and also. Yeah, obviously, if this is a dangerous place, it's illegal to go to. Stay away. Gotcha. Thanks so much, Ben. You're welcome. And folks, keep it here. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. Well, Bill and Hillary Clinton are in Toronto to give a talk here at the Scotiabank Arena. And it's about 35 minutes to showtime. As you can see, folks, it's um, not exactly Leafs versus Canadians on a Saturday night, or for that matter, a Trump rally. Still, the question arises, why are Bill and Hillary Clinton in Toronto in the first place? And secondly, who would buy a ticket for this event, some of which are selling for over $400? Uh, let's try to find out from some of the Democrat fans. Hey, guys, are you here to see the Clintons? Yes. Yeah, what brings you out, ma'am? Oh, just, uh, we're interested to in watching them. Oh, okay then. Say, listen, we're wondering, in this Me Too era, how come they haven't apologized to Monica Lewinsky yet? <laughs> no comment. Say, guys, are you coming to the uh, Clinton event? We are, we are. Okay, what brings you out to see them, sir? Well, we just rather admire them, that's all. They're oh, very okay. good. So. What makes you admire the Clintons? Well, I think Bill Clinton was one of the best presidents they ever had. Okay. You know, he's a very smart man, okay. did a great job. I think his wife would have done a great job, too, if <laughs> that other guy hadn't shown up. <laughs> Tell me, sir, in this day and age of the Me Too movement, why do you think Bill Clinton has yet to apologize to Mon Monica Lewinsky? Oh, I don't. No opinion there. No opinion? No. No? Okay. Oh, uh, just wondering what brings you out, man. I'm interested in the Clintons. Oh, okay then. Now, tell me, you know, one of the questions we're asking people is that since we're living in the Me Too era, why do you think Bill Clinton hasn't apologized to Monica Lewinsky yet? I'm not going to comment on Bill Clinton. No. Oh. Hey, guys, are you going to the Clinton event? Yes, we are. Oh, great. What brings you out, ma'am? Uh, well, we're very interested in American politics, and okay. the Clintons certainly are at the center of that. That's for sure. How about yourself, sir? Well, the same thing, and also as a once-in-a-lifetime uh, chance to see someone like uh, an ex-president of the United States doesn't come along, you know, too often to do to have this chance. Tell me, in this day and age of the Me Too movement, why do you think Bill Clinton has yet to apologize to Monica Lewinsky? No, no, no we're oh, fine. We're fine. <laughs> we're no, 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 no. What, what happened? He was the only one to get caught. He was. He just did what all the other presidents did before him. Oh, okay then. So. Everybody that's occupied the Oval Office has I, I been doing that with young interns? Sadly, yes. Really? Okay. Then. How about yourself, ma'am? You're a woman. You've got skin in the game when it comes to sexual harassment. I don't, ha I don't think anybody has skin in... The oh. Sorry, I don't think anybody has skin in the game when it comes to sexual harassment. If you'd like to apologize for what you've said... <laughs> what did I say? Totally fine. But I think that's wildly inappropriate to call sexual harassment a game by any means. Um, Is but it more inappropriate what Bill Clinton did to... And maybe use your words a little bit more wisely with somebody else. Holy shoot, the messenger, Batman. <laughs> well, the Billery Show hit Toronto earlier this week and plenty of good seats 
went unsold. But as you saw, Clinton fans run for the hills when you bring up that other L word, Lewinsky. So much for female empowerment, I guess, when it comes to the slobbering love affair so many on the left have for the Clinton duo. In any event, here's what some of you had to say about the inability of attendees to comment on certain somewhat embarrassing topics. Wayne Milligan writes, the Clinton crime family can't draw flies even in downtown Toronto. Gotta love the collection of perfectly coiffed progressive geriatrics in their furs and pearls who didn't want to talk about Bill's sexual harassment of the intern Monica, let alone the rape of Juanita Broderick, Hillary's pay-to-play State Department, and the blatant tax evasion of the Clinton Foundation. These progressive fools wasting their time and money listening to two of the most corrupt politicians in American history. Hey Wayne, you bring up so many superb points about other Clinton-esque scandals, but as you saw, these people came for a session of sanitize for your protection, happy talk, even though there are more skeletons in the Clinton closet than you'd find at the local graveyard. Joe Exon writes, of this I am certain, Donald Trump comes to the liberal stronghold Toronto, he sells out immediately. You know, I bet you're right, Joe. I also bet the usual suspects, ranging from hardcore feminists to Antifa, would try to make things miserable for attendees going to a Trump event in Toronto. On the flip side, I did not encounter a single protester regarding the Clinton event. Funny that, eh? Sharon Isaac writes, Monica Lewinsky is the least of Clinton's crimes. You know what, Sharon? The worst thing I can say about that statement is that you are likely 100% correct, such as the sheer magnitude of Clinton chicanery. And Mr. Tragic Dragon writes, OMG, the level of stupid is so high, I had to bang my head repeatedly on my desk just to make the pain stop. Hey, careful, Mr. Tragic Dragon. That sort of behavior will turn you into a card-carrying Democrat. Well, that wraps up another edition of Rebel Roundup. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next week. And hey, folks, never forget, without risk, there can be no glory. Good night.